from Groove U Studios in Columbus, Ohio. This is Getting the Brand Back Together, a podcast exploring the interdisciplinary art of banding, branding, and business building. Rock and roll relic, poet, writer, and brandist, I'm your host, Brad Cerconi. Today, we're joined by Rick Silk, an attorney with Dickie McKamey. Welcome to the show, Rick. Hey. And in full disclosure, uh, today's guest is uh, a cousin of mine and uh, was the guitar player for The Toll when we were signed uh, to Geffen and we were signed in 1987. I did research because usually I don't remember this. Uh, we put out our first record in 1988 and our second record in 91. The first record was Price of Progression. The second record was Sticks and Stones and Broken Bones. First of all, there were two guitar players. Oh, okay. I wasn't the guitar player. Okay. You okay. were also a guitar player. I was back up. And the second one is, is when you introduced me, the reason I was laughing is because yeah. I was thinking about you considering yourself a rock and roll relic. <laughs> That's a great line. What's that make me? <laughs> You're right. You're vintage. You're yeah. vintage. I like vintage. That's very That's, distinguished. It is. It is. So just give people a frame of reference. During those years, we were signed on Geffen with Guns N' Roses, Aerosmith, E. Brickell, Robbie Robertson, Joni Mitchell, Jimmy Page, XTC. This is all 1988. And Sir Elton John. Don Henley. Don Henley. So I'm saying this because I want you to understand just how far down we were in the pecking order. <laughs> you couldn't go far enough down the pecking order. <laughs> exactly. I mean, when the vice president of the damn company in the top of Rockefeller Center listens to your first record and says, it's awesome. Don't know what the hell to do, do with, it. with it. You got a problem. <laughs> exactly. I also want everybody to know, full disclosure, that I taught Rick how to play guitar. And teaching, by the way, the word taught used in that sentence was is probably a, too elevated of a term. I showed him, <laughs> I showed him how to play guitar. In about 60 days, he surpassed me. In my ability to play, in my opinion, I know he'll have a different opinion. I do. And I, I think he's been teaching me ever since that. I think after that, at day 61, I became the student. With that being said, let's move on. So one of the things I want to talk about is start off to break the ice for you, Mr. Silk, is what one attribute was your most favorite? I know you had many that weren't. But one at what was your one attribute was the most your most favorite thing about being in the toll or, or a band being in a rock and roll band? Well, it would be how liberating it was, uh, but equally limiting. The business model for music back then was a lot different than it probably is now. I'm guessing just by seeing basically you can sit in your bedroom, right? Eilish. Oh, yeah. You know, Billy Eilish. Her and her brother, yeah, who's yeah. a musical genius. Who's a genius. Yeah. He is. Recording her bedroom, right? Right. So, it, it was a lot different when when we were around. And plus, when you're signed to a record label, they got to make money. Right. Uh, and so, their ability to be patient is sort of like NCAA football coaches <laughs> these days. You better win or we're moving on. Right. So, probably the liberating aspect of it. Because, as you know, I grew up with a controlling father, mm -hmm. <laughs> to say the least. That's yeah. being friendly. God love him. That's a, um, that's a fine adjective. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it was absolutely foreign to me. And, and I still get that feeling now that I've started playing again. Right. So, I think liberating is a great word. I've known you all my life, obviously. I was going to guess you were going to say something like, you know, my, what what I was going to pick, which was if I was asking myself the question, is just this ultimate freedom. And it's not about the freedom of being, you know, when, when you think about rock and roll and you think about, I like the word liberating better, but when you think about the the word freedom in rock and roll, it can also sound like that it's not disciplined or you're just out partying and things like that. And that's not what you mean by liberating. It's not what I mean by freedom. It's the ability to take what's inside of you, that creative energy that you've never been able to place any place and create something and express something with a group of guys in a meaningful way that influences other people around you that you don't know. Absolutely. So that's why I think liberating is a great word because I think it's true for you and I think it's true for the people who listen to, who liked and listened to what we did on stage or, or otherwise. So the, let's talk a little bit about the process of collaboration. 
you and I have transitioned our careers into our musical careers into uh, different professional service careers. We're both professional service people, you an attorney, me as a advertising marketing brand consultant. And one of the things that I want to talk to you about is collaboration and, you know, collaboration of what that means in uh, writing a song and what that means in, as an artist, being around other people who are collaborating, and then what collaboration means in a professional service business, you know, compared to that. So when I think about collaboration in the artistic world, you and I both have images that are probably similar because we come from the same experience of that, of how we wrote songs and, and songwriting. But in the world of, of professional services, whether it's accounting, banking, law, uh, agency work like I do, speak to me about how you might have used some of your collaboration in art and the way that you collaborated in art because you had a particular style. Do you use, do you pull on any of those artistic collaborative strengths when you're thinking about the legal field? I didn't in the beginning. In the beginning, I wasn't sure exactly what it was all about. I mean, I knew technically what it was about. Um, but in the legal field, your ability to collaborate is limited by who your manager is. So mentoring was critical when you first get out of law school. It's right. why attorneys used to have apprenticeships. Right. Uh, which, frankly, probably would be a lot more effective than going to law school for three years where they tell you what, how the constitution should be interpreted instead of listening to how you interpret the right, words, right, right? Right. Or do the research to figure out what the founders might have meant. So in the beginning, not having a particularly good mentor can mean all the difference. So it's, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I was able to use how we collaborated and fed off of each other in the legal field. Mm -hmm. It really blossomed when I was an assistant attorney general where you could literally practice law for the sake of practicing law. No billable hours. Right. Terrible pay. Right. Long hours. But, and, pure, but purity of law. Absolutely. And you did have to answer to the state of Ohio as your client. But right. other than that, you were free to explore how to get the best result. That didn't exist in the law firm atmosphere before I got to that point. I mean, I had some really wonderful people that I worked for, mm -hmm. but we didn't collaborate. Right, right. In fact, the last trial I tried right before I went to the attorney general's office, it was baffling to me that I would try a case and not have a single collaborative session with the attorney <laughs> with whom I was trying the case. And he was the managing partner of the law yeah, of we, the we, office. We couldn't walk on stage like that. No. Well, we might have had days where we weren't exactly in touch. Right. That's going to happen with as many days as we were on the road, what, right. 300 days a year for right. a long, long time. Right. But you can't do what we did without having an absolute collaborative process. So that's where I discovered it. And, it, and what also came out of that um, development in the attorney general's office was having a mentor who said, you're really good at this, this, and this. Let's take advantage of that. I don't want you to be who I am. I want you to be who you are. That was the first time that happened to me. That's a beautiful statement. That's being in a band. Yeah, exactly. That's how, right? That's being in a band. There were things that our bass player, Greg, was way better at than either one of us. There were other things that our drummer, Brett, like background vocals, right, that mm -hmm. he was talented at. And the one thing we did is divide up our expertise as a collective. So when they came together, it was a unified collective. Yeah, because uh, honestly, I was limited <laughs> musically. And that's being nice. And, um, and I'm going to tell you that he is lying right now. I'm not lying. Now, you, you may have started off limited. We're going to get to this. There's a <laughs> okay. whole thing. Because one thing I want to challenge you on is we did not begin building a, a band in the beginning. We built a brand 
on fashion, look, and attitude and culture because we couldn't play. <laughs> we didn't have a band. That's why we couldn't we, cover a song. We couldn't. No, no we don't do covers. <laughs> we don't do covers because we suck and we can't do covers. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So collaboration today from what, you know, that, uh, how, how many years we were together in the band from before we were signed through signed, what is that, a decade? Yeah, a little over. A little over. We were collaborating nearly almost every day. Like you said, maybe not in touch with each other, but we had practiced how to touch. So we already knew, right? Because we were highly disciplined, maybe too disciplined. We were disciplined. Today, now, when you think about collaboration, then would you say that in your relationship building, maybe on the client side, not necessarily on just the structural side of the firm, do you think there is some fit on understanding your audience on the client side in collaboration and expectations, just like a band to an audience in a show or performance, right? You're a performing professional or you're a performing artist? Yeah, absolutely. And sort of continuing on that previous thought, I, when I made the move to leave the attorney general's office to go to Dickie McCamey, I was hopeful that I would get the same kind of collaboration and I was correct. You know, so I, so that development that I was getting at that time, uh, when I was at the attorney general's office for almost five years has carried forward. That's great. That's a great thing. Absolutely. With people that are really interested in how I can contribute to the result. And so when we talk about results in terms of clients, that uh, collaboration with them is is a big part of it, particularly because I do primarily defense work. So you've been sued. You're a major corporation that's had a, an awful catastrophic event, for example, like a bridge collapse, and you've been sued. There are a lot of implications from that lawsuit, notwithstanding the fact that you got to really live what right. may have happened as a result of right, that right. catastrophe and and. I'm using that as an example because that was one of the first big items I uh, dealt with when I came over to Dickie McCamey and I worked with the managing partner on that case. And it, it was absolutely a collaborative effort because he's a big picture guy. And a lot of the way that you were a big picture guy, still are, you know, and I'm more of the happy to get in the weeds kind of guy. And so that discovery and that comfort that I get from being in that position has has gone or been more fully developed right, right. even since uh, the days. And so, you know, clients appreciate that they're getting, they don't just want to know what's going on. Right. They really want to know the bad news too. Right. But the, the goal is to make them understand that, you know, the, these it's just where we are. Nobody's blaming anybody. Right. You got to figure out a way to deal with it and, and develop a plan. And so that's where the collaboration process comes in with the client. And also you got to know what the client wants out of it. Right, right, right. You know, because a lot of times their first instinct is to, to don't give in, don't let's right, fight. Right. Uh, but at some point you have to do a cost-benefit analysis on it. What is it doing to you time-wise? What is it doing to you energy-wise? And, and by you, I mean the, you know, the firm. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the company, your employees. Right. Um, so, what's all that impact? Yeah, and is it worth it? Yeah. So, impacts the words. That that's you're you're the wordsmith, and that's the <laughs> word. It's impact, and that's what you have to think about when you're working through that process. It's not exactly the same. No, as I know. being a musician because it, you know it's it's the liberating factor, but getting having those moments where you connect both with whomever you're working with even on the other side of the right. aisle, so to speak, right. Right. and your client. That's the value. Yeah. They, they give value to that feeling of collaboration. It's not the epiphanal high that you and I had when we said, oh, we wrote this song called Jonathan Toledo, and it's on MTV. Yeah. It's not going to feel quite that way. That never happened, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it did, but it's hard to it, imagine. It, that did it did happen. Did. It did happen. Okay, so since we're segueing to the band, the band was good at one thing. We were good at knowing what we weren't good at. Yeah. We were very good at knowing what we weren't good at. And since it was just a few things, it was very easy to remember. 
<laughs> so both of those things were helpful. And so people ask me all the time, how the hell did you guys get signed for $3.6 million or whatever the hell it was? Stottlemyre says it's more than that. I don't know. I respond. Usually, if I don't necessarily want to get in a long conversation, Rick, I say, we created a, a differentiated expertise. That's how we got signed. That's a simple way and few words of saying it. They usually stare at me and either walk away, which is my intention. <laughs> <laughs> no more questions. <laughs> but I've never really asked you, or I want you, I want, you know, we all have stories from a different perspective. But tell our listeners who are listening to this idea of banding, branding, and business building, from your vantage point and your perspective, and tell us, how, how do you tell that story, how, how the hell we got signed? Well, I mean, not the stages, but how did it happen? Well, it happened two ways. One is we, uh, get, we were serious. So we, instead of just saying, hey, I'm in a band, it was six days a week, we're rehearsing, and we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure out, we're going to have a, a chalkboard that lists uh, independent record companies, where they're located and who's on their label. Where do we fit into that? How can we get in front of them? And their A&R person. So I mean, we literally had <laughs> what could arguably called brand building meetings. Right. Before we could even put together more than three chords. Right. So the discipline aspect was a big part of it. Uh, and the other part of it is, I don't care what anybody <laughs> says. That's very nice What you, differentiated but... us, what differentiated us was the guy in the middle of the stage. It doesn't matter. I, I, can, I can tell you right now, it made what I did really easy. <laughs> well, now, it was very... hard in the aspect of keeping up with you and figuring out what mood you're going for, but I could usually get it from when you were waving your hand saying, nah, that's not it. shut the hell up, <laughs> you know, quieter or louder or, you know, but because we're, we're blood, it, it was a lot easier for me than the other guys. Than the other two guys. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, but there's no doubt in my mind that that day, I think we were at Crazy Mamas and we were playing some way, oh someday. My, oh my God. You remember the song and the location. And Crazy Mamas was the most, let me, for our listeners, Crazy Mamas was the most badass punk bar on campus. Right? It, it was. It was. And, it, and we I, went there to find our future wives. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> we almost didn't fit in there because we uh, were so serious. Serious. Right. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't just about the image that was being projected there. Because we, we were sort of almost counter to that culture. culture but it we was, were. We didn't really have anywhere else to go, right? No. We were so, limited. So we played in the Battle of the Bands. And in that, in what in that set, you went off. Okay, I don't remember this. I don't remember if it was specifically the that battle set, of bands, right. but that's what I'm going with. Okay. Right? Okay. Okay. And you went off on this song, and you probably because I forgot the real lyrics. Probably. Yeah. Well, maybe because <laughs> I mean, you were never satisfied with the lyric no, for I anything. Wasn't. I wasn't. And <laughs> you had a hard time emotionally at least from my perspective, settling on whatever the words are going to be. The hook melody maybe was oh, yeah, the I love easy that. part. Yeah, yeah. But what what words you chose to put in there, that especially in the beginning, that was a monster to grab right. onto. So for my so you went off. They weren't paying attention. Or maybe they were and they weren't feeling the same way you were in that instance. <laughs> And you went off and you used your wordsmith ability to just build this colorful, emotional outburst. And I got into it. I think you <laughs> it told resonated. Me, yes, with you. And I think I told you, I think I apologized or something. I said, sorry about that or whatever. And I think you said something like, that's what you should be doing. Or that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Because I, the, when it happened, I remember thinking, I can play the three chords that I can play, Yeah, literally, a bunch of different ways when he does this. This works. I see. We're so gonna, it, gave you, it gave you flexibility too, 
and your limitations. And I was using it because the words weren't right for me. So I was limited. So my, my ability to improvise and my limitation was giving you more freedom to improvise in yours. And it also gave That's me... That's interesting. A, yeah, absolutely. It liberated me because I could play around with figuring out how to make these chords sound different right. than everybody else. Right. Which is how I developed the style I ended up with. Oh, and we're going to talk about your style. And then the other thing was, is I got a role in the band because I got to turn to the guys and say, yes or no. Do it Because this you way. were busy. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, planting little words. I was clicked, busy. It absolutely clicked for me. I, I there's a niche here, and I remember you telling me that afterwards because I was very hesitant about it because I I just thought I had made a huge mistake. Well, I don't. I'm not sure I was. You know, you weren't out promoting it, but right. you, you, but you reinforced to me that you thought there might be something there. Yeah. So that's the liberating. There's an ultimate moment, back to your point, of liberation. So now let's talk about limiting. So we get signed. We're doing some interviews. If you're in a good enough mood to come with me to do interviews half the time, because of what I'm going to tell you that was limiting, but we were compared to a bunch of bands, whether it be U2, The Doors, whomever, right? Yeah. Um, the Cult, whoever it was. And I remember I just said this on a previous podcast that I would say, well, we just want, actually want to be the toll. This is what we do. And I, and I would hear your guitar playing uh, after we would do particular tracks, especially in the studio, like the track, the, 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 the guitar work that you did on, on a 41 box, totally live in the studio. I think the song's 12 and a half minutes long as it is on the first record. Yeah. Except for the choruses, ad-libbed. Some, some of the verse was written, but musically, the whole musical breakdown is ad-libbed, improvised. And to me, that's when I recognized that, well, wait a minute, this is where it gets interesting. But we kept getting limited back into, so what was your first Doors record that you got into? And I, I didn't have any Doors records, yeah. right? So I get the comparison. I get the comparison. But there wasn't a record. Yeah. All I can tell you. But I grew up in Texas. Right. I did not listen to The Doors. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to blues and country. Right. And what was, what, album-oriented rock. Album, AOR a rock. AOR Zeppelin, rock. Zeppelin. Right. Journey. Right. Rush. REO. Mix that in with cowboys and straight up blues. Right. And then you came and you and I got into The Clash. And that's where it all came from. Yep. Right? Yeah, because we could play the class. Right. Well, you could. But tell me how frustrating that was for you uh, as an artist when you saw what we had created and that because it's human nature to want to define us based on other definitions. And you and I would talk about this all the time, I think, because you saw my anguish. But was that a, was that a, how do you work through that artistically? Uh, it was Absolutely frustrating because when I listened, when they made the suggestion, for example, of Jim Morrison, I listened to him. Again, I get the comparison, but poetry-wise and the depth was, I, I just didn't see it. I mean, listen to the words upon a 41 box and think about what it's about. This is a, a man talking about the perspective of a woman being in an, a loveless marriage, basically. Yeah, that's a good An term. unfulfilling, loveless marriage. And so the frustrating part for me is, is, is look, the, the music business, it's funny that people use a crutch like, well, you sound like so-and-so, you have elements of so-and-so because they can't otherwise describe you. It's art. Right. Try being creative and create on your own and describe on your own. Now, we came across people like that, obviously. We did. That, that didn't use the comparisons. It's, it, the comparisons are natural. Sure. But you got to do a little more work than that. That's exactly right. And that, that kind of ties in, in it, that whole mentoring thing that I was talking about earlier because it was important Success-wise, it's been important for every band, particularly in that business model back in those days, for who mentors the band, so to speak, and takes them beyond the, okay, you're signed, now what part? Right. And if they don't understand what your 
uh, uniqueness is and how to how to develop that brand, then you're going to have an example where you have a, a fantastic live band that's okay in the studio. True statement. Not out on the road. Right. Not right. in the right kind of places playing music. We were a college band. Right. More well, than we, anything. We, we were actually charting on college stations. And that's what you and I developed as, I forget what the name of our fake booking <laughs> company was. I don't know, but it was. Either. You were West Wynn. Yes. And I can't remember what my name was. It wasn't Tex Buford, but it was probably <laughs> something like that. To book the band. Yeah, to book the band. Because we understood that calling a bar owner in, North, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, telling them you Which have- Which was your account, by yeah. the way. And saying, I have this band. Oh, and by the way, I'm the guitar player. Yeah, it just doesn't sell. No, but if I have a different name and I got this band that I'm promoting, I'm going to send you a cassette and, and you know, we press built, back. We, we put together that. Yep. That's what we did. Yeah, we marketed. We marketed. And, and, and they wanted to meet these guys. And we could sure as hell help them do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, couldn't make it out here today. Remember the guy in Indianapolis that was just, he was aggravated that West Wind wasn't going to show up. Yes. I, I said this to you before we were rolling, that I think in those early years, we were a better brand than we were a band because of our inability to play. And my question to you is this. Smoke and mirrors. <laughs> my question to you is this. Do you think, if you look about our musicality on the first record and second record, do you think that... I mean, I have my opinion about this, but I want to I hear yours. And we haven't talked about this, I don't think. Do you think by becoming more musical that we in some ways diluted our natural, our primitiveness, our visceral approach became a bit diluted because we were becoming ta more talented as musicians? Is it a give and take where when you add in talent, maybe you lose some of the passion you relied on before because all you had before was passion, right? Hence, that was our brand. Really, if I was going to say there was a, the first beginning of the brand was passion. Then as we became more musical, we became a bit more direct. We became a little bit more mainstream, if you look at the second record, right? Have you given that thought? I have. And I used to think that. I used to think that it was a matter of just getting, becoming better musicians. I mean, Greg was already a fantastic musician. I mean, he could play whatever we asked him to play willingly, which is hard to get out of a musician, right? Yeah. I used to think that, and now I look at it differently. It was a failure of uh, mentorship. What right? you said earlier. Yeah. yeah. Because what are we good at? Why are we trying to hide it? So I think what happened was is nobody tapped into what the brand is in putting it into a recording. Actually, I used to think that the price of progression wasn't as good a record. Right, I know, me too. We were wrong. Yeah, but I listened to it recently. I had to borrow it from Greg because I don't have a copy. <laughs> I'll get you at, one. At least I don't know where it is. <laughs> That's probably the truth. But I listened to it, and, and, and even though I agree that orally it's not as good, it does a better job of capturing who we were in uh, trying to bottle it than the second record. That's not to say that Matt Wallace didn't do a great job managing. He did. And I think we changed yeah. too. I, I, think, I think there's a couple of things there. We did, but it still goes back to that whole issue is, you know, the, the role of the producer. And, and I think where it all went south is when Mr. Rosenblatt went, Left, left to go to London yeah. to work for MCA in yeah. London because nobody else understood. Like he did. Like we, we did. Right. But the guy understood I know. who the toll were. Well, you remember the first record, and uh, your our listeners are going to laugh about this. I remember we were on Summit Avenue living in that place on Summit Street where there were a lot of things going on. Like watching TV and having people break into your basement to yeah, see Yeah, I'm just stuff. saying yeah. there were illegal activities everywhere. Yeah. It was more illegal activities than legal. Not by us, just the area. Right? Yeah, absolutely. We lived in a duplex, got broken into every other night. <laughs> 
But the one thing that I think stayed true in the band, yeah. we, we saw it in Guns N' Roses as label mates. But the one thing I was proud of when I left there and I want to talk to you about today is that our passion did not seem unwavered, though we had been through a lot of stuff. Was not. It was not. Ever. Right. So while you talked about discipline at the beginning of the podcast, this idea of passion, I think, is a, is a, huge, a huge thing. And I use this still today. What did rock and roll teach me? You know, what did I learn from rock and roll? And the one thing is, if you're passionate and visceral, and it's just visceral for you, and that brings you energy, you can use that in a bunch of other things besides art. Rolling Stone Magazine, by the way, called you our secret weapon. Remember our review? I'll, yeah. ju I'll just tell you what it said in Rolling Stone for the listeners. <laughs> Two and a half stars. The toll isn't as good as they think they are, and they're not as bad as they should be. Right? Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> That's how they started it. But at the end, it said their secret w weapon is guitar player Rick Silk. Correct? You got to take that one. Yeah. Okay. That yeah, was said. I said that. All right. Misguided. <laughs> so, no, that's a wonderful compliment. Yeah. And so I've always thought that passion is everyone's secret weapon. If you're wise enough to take the time to develop it and execute it and deliver on it. And when I first started getting in the marketing and branding business, the one gap I saw in the ad business was passion. Real passion for the products, the clients, right? So I wrote a piece in Business First about the four Ps, you know, talking about price, product, promotion, and place, four Ps of marketing. And I said, that's not, those Ps don't, they don't matter. What matters is passion, you know, right? When you touch that iPhone, it's because it's built, it's built with passion. It's built with precision. And there's a passion for that. Do you, do you still keep that element in the legal realm? I uh, do. I, I just wanted to comment on the, yeah. in thinking about marketing, passion doesn't mean the visceral aspect that we exuberated, right? It can also be a little tiny increment too. Absolutely. And, and passion equates to a connection. There's an emotional connection. So when you have an emotional connection with a product, something as simple as milk. Right. You know, that's what they want. That's what gets you to keep going back, right? Same with a band, though. I mean, yeah. right? Yeah. You can hear a song that John Schwab was talking about on our last podcast that the, some of these people have seen him 1,000 times, right? Wow. Yeah. And he says he can still lean through the light and see on their faces they feel the same way. And I asked him, what are you delivering them? He said, I'm relieving them of pain for a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's right? a great way of looking at it. And when you just said what a product wants is that human connection, that moment, right? That's the same thing as songs to deliver. And you can, you know, you and I are the same way about cars. We can hear the engine in a car and go, they got us, right? Yeah. Right? Or the interior, just the lines on it. Right. There's something soulful yeah, in that. It's an element of camaraderie. It's it's breaking away from being isolated as a single human being, right? Because you have that connection. Right. And and that element of passion is what gets you there. Because if you don't have it, there's no connection. Right. It doesn't matter that you there's and no I bridge. are in the same room. Right, right. Because we're not connecting. So as a band, an emerging brand, we were extremely disciplined. You brought this up and you brought up the chalkboard. Yeah. This chalkboard is famous because really what we were doing is data mining. We were, we were doing modern marketing. Analytics. We were doing analytics. And not only, as Rick talked about the chalkboard, were we looking at what artists were on what labels. Oh, no, no, that wasn't enough. We researched what A&R guy, that stands for artist and repertoire, was signing what bands, when they were signing, and what types of bands were trending, and how long would this trend last when we would drink our Jack Daniels, we would talk about this. How long will REM stay where they are? Is this Irish invasion with U2 really going to happen? And what is Southern rock? What is alt rock? And, you know, if you think about what Rosenblatt signed, Rosenblatt, who was our A&R guy who signed us, a friend of ours, a, a, our companion we lost inside the record company, he discovered a few bands I'd like to share with you. Madonna, the De De Depeche Mode, and the B-52s. <laughs> so these bands are not, and his favorite band was The Clash. So obviously when he saw us, not that we were, you know, I wasn't like a virgin or anything, and you certainly weren't. 
<laughs> Although I did escort her to the parking lot. You did. Uh, from Freddie DeMann's office. <laughs> you did escort her. I did. It's, it's true. It's true. A lovely young lady. <laughs> but but my point is, is that I think, um, unlike any other bands that I've talked to and, and uh, over the years, and you and I have met quite a few, we had this thing called the discipline of art, what you brought up earlier. And that's what got us through. And I'm in a business that is about commercial art now, not individual artisanship. But I use that discipline of art, that research, right? And, and that um, critical thinking all the time. In your current profession, do you see your approach as, of course, discipline? Do you also see it sometimes? Do you also pull up sometimes the artful discipline of what you do? I do. I make it a point to think, what am I missing? I'm going to go back over this. Am I missing anything on, uh, you know, is there another way of looking at this? Yeah. Looking at this? I, I always look at what the other side is saying is absolutely valid. Okay. Uh, when they're, when I try to imagine how they're, they would argue a legal issue or their case. And, I didn't start out doing that. Right, right. Nobody told me to do that, but right. I, I developed it through the mentorship I got at the attorney general's office because the uh, primary attorney there was the best mentor I ever had at the time. And because he saw in me uh, an, uh, an untapped resource, sort of in the same way you did, and nurtured it. Right. Right. And so he taught me, not only do you have to have every base covered, you got to figure out how to simplify every base. That was my weakness, uh, being in the weeds. Yeah, but you're very good at detail. So I can imagine you weighing those things out. And I think both of our Achilles heel as cousins is we lack, we're not good at simplifying. Right, we we mm -hmm. have a mutual friend that's on his way over to the studio right now. He's very good at simplifying. Yeah, it's and hard to do. It's hard to do. But you know, a lot of the terms you were just using—I didn't want to interrupt you—but a lot of the terms you were just using also comes from hours of songwriting, Rick. Where yeah. you say, "Is that hook right? If I do this with the chord, if I invert it, what happens? If we start the vocal on two instead of one, what happens?" Like. If I walk into one, remember we were listening to NXS and you kept saying to me, but he's not on one, Brad, Michael Hutchinson. He's walking into one. And that's how I figured out how to sing, um, let me stand in winter, right? It's yeah. Da, 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 one. Yeah. Right? I didn't never know that. let me fall. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know how to do that. And so just what you were just saying about you looking at a case with that critical artistic eye to say creatively, is there another way to do this? If all things are true, what happens if I turn the model this way or turn flip it upside down? Yeah, and it's that, that's to, to bring it back full circle to the question you asked me and how I apply it now. That's exactly right. You, you might over-research something, but when you start getting back the same results, and they, you know, that's sort of the mechanical approach to it, but you, you got to keep looking at it uh, from the uh, other perspective and from a new perspective to the extent you can. So I spent a lot of time awake in the middle of the night trying to figure out what I'm missing or how can I look at this a different way to figure out how to get the best result. And, and, the, and it's just like in our songwriting, you study. You, you study. just study it. You listen. What, what, how did that work? It's all the same chords. Right. You know. It's all the same math. Pentatonic scale <laughs> because that's what the American ear wants to hear. Right. And that's what you hear naturally. But how do you get there? How do you make a, you know, a DAG sound different? Right, right. So in my, stylistically, it was to uh, connect them linearly with melody within the chord. But it was all based on what I liked to listen to. What are the elements of things that I like? How can I figure out how to do that without learning how to play the guitar? Because I don't have time to learn how to play the guitar. <laughs> And the other, the other aspect of that is, the other is, is coming to terms with your limitations. What we said earlier. Yeah. We one, knew what we weren't good at. Yeah. And, and, and I, 
especially during um, Sticks and Stones, I was struggling with the fact that I... That's our second record. Yeah. I was struggling with the fact that I couldn't play technically what I wanted to play. You were frustrated at times. I was extremely frustrated with that aspect. But then now today, having gone back and, and, and started playing again for the sake of the creative part of it. Yes. I've come to terms with my limitations. It's that well, you know what? What's wrong with being limited? Right. It's how it, the, the whole reason we got signed to a record deal was because we learned how to exploit our um, limitations. Well, we, we exploited what we're, we're good at, good at and ignored our limitations. Right. Right. We covered up our limitations by being really good at something. Right. And so I started thinking about what is it that I do on the guitar? It's not really different than anybody else, but what is it? No, your approach is different. What is it that's me? Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, last night I did this knowing what we were going to do today. I ran through everything I'm working on. Yeah. And I thought, all that sounds like me. (laughs) <laughs> See, you have a brand. I do. You do. I know I, you do. That all sounds like me. All of those could be toll songs right. in some way. Right, right. Or and and the reason is is because they're me. Right. And, and which, your style and your brand of approaching a guitar. Yep. Yeah, and and that that I was able to go to sleep. <laughs> That's good. Now let's talk about that then. I want to talk about rhythm. For our listeners, the guy that is talking on the other mic has a lot of rhythm. Now, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to get a little lost in music here. And this is coming from a very limited individual musically. That when you think of a beat, the Psychedelic First taught us this. I think Matt Wallace talked about this. When you think about a beat, a beat in music, there's the middle of the beat. We hold up our fingers like this because in the middle of your peace sign is the middle of the beat. There's the front of the beat. There's the back of the beat. And the top. Right. I was never on the top. No, but you were never in the middle either. Yeah. So, and we say that, you know, if you're in the back of the beat, you're late, you're sexy, you're loose, but you're still on the beat. If you're on the front edge of the beat, you're pushing, you're anticipating, you're moving the song, your energy in the front of the beat, right? Yep. In the middle of the beat means that you're tracking well. You're where you're supposed to be. So... Our fine guest here had a tendency to be way more interested in the back of a beat. Now, if we were rolling music for you, we could pick songs where the main instruments or perhaps the bass, certainly a guitar at times, can be at the back of the beat. Well, Mr. Silk not only liked to be at the back of the beat, now he could do this in the same song. He could he also like, and he did this purposefully. This is part of his branded form. Yeah. You like being at the front of a beat. You mm-hmm. like to push a beat. In fact, Matt had to run me through a delay. Correct. Matt Wallace, our second producer, ran him through a delay because he was actually, you weren't off the beat. You were pushing the front of the yep. beat. Correct? Yep. Okay. So I've been wanting to ask you this for years. All your chops and the things, I'm talking about when you're not note picking. I'm talking about when you're paying, playing a normal rhythm that I would play. I'll bend them in the middle of the beat. Okay. <laughs> You're on the edges of the beats. Why did you find that? So, and I, I know you purposely. That's how you. That's how you heard music. Why was that so intriguing to you? Because it's not milk toast. <laughs> <laughs> because if you can only play three chords, you better figure out a way to do it differently. Okay. Right. Yeah. So I would try to figure out how to edge the beat and then also connect it with melody all in the same all at the same time i know and that's what i say your guitar brand is yeah it's melody to edge beats melody to edge beats and sometimes with riffs in the same in the same tune you're connecting your basic chords with melody and almost percussion that's what i wrote here that's uh, that, funny. That, that's the word that I have for you. I was going to yeah. find like you, you're you fill the gas. It, it, it's not almost, folks. I'm going to define this again. If you ever do want to listen to a not almost <laughs> percussive guitar player, now I want to talk about your influences. So you've got the southern, you, you got you've got corporate rock, 
You've got, which certainly wouldn't be that, but you've got Southern rock, you've got blues, you got country music because you're from the, you're from Texas. That's where you're raised, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And then you're introduced to the edge and punk music and some cool things that are going on that are totally oppositional to that. Do you think those two contrarian approaches is why you're either front of the beat or back of the beat? Maybe. I look at, when I listen to a Clash song, it's still the Beatles. Really? It's still the Beatles. Because the really good, inspiring Clash songs still have that pentatonic connection. They happen to have an incredible diversity in terms of being influenced by ska, right, reggae, reggae right. early rap, right, funk, right, uh, blues. I mean, Joe Strummer loved Joe Eli, right, I or know. Ely, however you pronounce it, which is sort of today gets played on outlaw country, right, 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 and country it, all it has rockabilly even. elements yeah, too. Yeah, that's so what I'm you saying. could country. connect. Uh, Elvis Presley that too or Perkins right so it really is all the same it's just a matter of perspective and how you approach it right Mm -hmm. so one of the things I love about writing now that I might not appreciate it then is Whatever comes out, comes out. I remember being in a hotel room with you in Nashville, Tennessee, when we were I did meet nothing with wrong. Rose. I did nothing wrong. You didn't do anything wrong, but I we remember. We were right you next saying, to Vanderbilt. We were, which is, well, we had a nickname for the city of Nashville that we won't we talk won't about. We talk about right now. My son applied to Vanderbilt, by the way. He'll never get in, but yeah. now he's Taylor, qualified. Taylor Rhodes was a, was a songwriter that was writing with the toll. And he wrote for Jay Giles Band, Aerosmith, Celine Dion, uh, played drums with the Scruggs, at Earl Scruggs. At 17. Incredible musician. Incredible Just, musician. But go ahead with your story, what I did to you at home. We were, we were in the hotel room. We were trying to run through some ideas that we had that we were going to lay on Taylor. Yeah. And after he said, yeah, okay, here's this stuff I'm working on. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but anyway, because that was his job, was I know, to steer I know. us. That was a Kalodner hire. Yeah. That was Kalodner. Shocking. <laughs> um, and, but some of the stuff we wrote there, and, and you remember, he came around to us. I know. He told me I could actually sing. He made me cry one day. He said, you can actually sing. He goes, no, you're not a great singer, but you're distinctively you. Yeah, it, it, but he also appreciated our angle. He did. No, he was into it. I think he yeah. got more into it as we got overwhelmed. I think he got more into it. No question. So what? I, so we're in the hotel room. I think we might have been on a song that you and I were working on called Black Headed Rose. With, you know, roses have petals, not heads, but right. either way. <laughs> um, it still was cool. It is. Um, yeah, I like the phrase. Did but you I remember you saying... Uh, you did. Okay. Well, but I, I like it. I remember you saying to me, what, where'd that come from? This is something I did. I don't remember what the hell it was. Cause I don't even remember the song specifically melody. I remember the, the hook to it, but beyond that, I don't remember anything. And I said, I don't know where I'm just a vehicle. <laughs> That's what you said. I'm just a vehicle. Yeah. But you know, what's funny about that is, uh, in, in John Schwab's, uh, podcast we just did, he was talking about uh, country writers saying that um, they're just getting a tiny piece of heaven is coming through yeah. through them. They're just a vehicle. Same thing, right? Yeah, and that's that's what we did. And, and that's why we had such a hard time with songs even like Taffeta. Right. Is because it just came out. Right. The, the, the key was having someone there to tell us it's okay, guys, you know, because we didn't have that mentoring. No, we when, didn't. Once You're right. Michael was gone. You're right. So anyway, it's figuring out how to take all that, well, there's attitude there, but all that creativity and funneling it into the brand. Right. And so not having that guidance might have been an issue. Not having that understanding, that artistic understanding from the outside looking in. Yeah, objectivity. Doubt wells up, right? Right, right. And that phrase, it was the doubt that prevented that stuff from connecting and and getting us to the next step. 
Totally agree. And that's so funny because one of the topics that I want to talk to you about is a, is a thing that I've coined recently called strange courage. And um, in youth, you know, we talk about a, uh, anything's possible. And you think when we first got signed, the, re- the reason we were able to even be signed, Rick, is because we had the confidence. Because we sucked musically. <laughs> no, we did. But we had the confidence in dreaming forward that we could paint the future into the dream. Right? Yeah. And I think about that. You can either, you know, pursue the dream. Because if you can create that, that paint this idea forward into the dream, you know, you have a better chance than if you say it can't be done. And so, for me, one of the things that rock and roll gave me is this strange courage to do things that shouldn't be possible. Now, some people might just call that a dreamer. Well, it isn't if you actually execute the stuff. We executed. We got signed for $3.6 million. But my point is, Apple, Casper, Tom Shoes, Ferrari, these are fearless pursuits of dreams. Those are fearless pursuits of dreams that actuate, right? For Steve Jobs to say, I want the inside of the phone to be as beautiful as the outside of the phone. For Tom Shoes to say, every time you buy a pair, I give another pair away to another country. That's dreamy vision stuff. Well, they became productized. So if you think of rock and roll, so we've gone from a little local band that got a nice size national record deal, products, and you think about the Stones, Zeppelin, Hendrix, Sex Pistols. Those are all naive courages that became new kinds of rock and roll, right? You know, you just, you just pierce my heart because I have always been a dreamer, but never an actualizer. And my wife, at the same time, lovingly says it, it's also a, a critical, and I understand that. You were the actualizer for me and I recognized it. And so I'm, I'm grabbing onto this guy and I'm going. Because, I mean, think about where I was. Right. I was lost, right? right? Right. When I came up here uh, from Texas and I could barely play guitar. But I recognized that you can help me actualize dreams. And it's probably why I can't finish the song to this day because being a dreamer, I have a hard time actualizing. Right. And, and, and what you just told me about all those people, that's the difference between, probably the dif- biggest difference between me and them is they had the ability to take it that next step. And it's, that's why I call it a strange little courage, right? It's just yeah. this little thing. And yeah. so what I wanted to ask you, that strange little courage in me for those years gave me confidence to always do things that I didn't know what to do. Because I had already done it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Do you, when you move from rock and roll to attorney, do you find times, whether it's an upcoming litigation, whether it's an internal strategy you're thinking about, whether it's a collaboration as you spoke of earlier with a client, do these little strange courages appear for you now in this profession? I wish they did. Honestly, I don't think they do um, because I'm really good analytically and I'm happy to read 100,000 pages of documents and (laughs) find the nugget. Um, But that's not courage. The courage is the next step. But I know that's a limitation of mine. And so I am the I'm a really good second chair. Right. And you, what I call it. I've said that to you before. You would say that to me before interviews. I was musically. I was second chair. Well, I just think that you like being the best second chair you can be. Yeah. I do. Absolutely. All right. I want to talk about another one more subject with you and then we'll wrap this up. And that is. Do we have to? Can we do a part B? (laughs) No, we're you're coming back. (laughs) But. Because I, I haven't had a chance to fu- tell any funny stories. I know. We've got to do that. Um, but I want to discuss positioning, whether it be in music, law, branding, banding, business building. And I want people to understand when a brand is positioning itself. So you um, brought up um, 
um, something very positional about your law firm when we were talking about this um, that you work for. Uh, before the podcast, you said they're one of the longest continually running law firms in the United States. So that's a positional differentiator. Um, but I want everybody to know positioning is just a fancy word for style. It's just style. Where's your, where do you fit in? And longevity. And longevity. Where are you at in the marketplace? And so when you think about style, just think about, and let's step back for a second. There's a guy goes and buys an Italian suit. The Italian suit's $2,000. Another guy with the same build, same amount of hair, same Rolex, buys a suit for $4,000. But one guy wears that suit like it's a second skin. Yeah. You don't. You go, that suit, that guy, same thing. Yeah. The other guy who just left a half an hour later, same watch, same hair, same build, looks uncomfortable, doesn't look like he can wear that suit very well. He's incongruent with the same $4,000 suit. So people say, you know, what is that? And I say, that's not an idea about suit selection. That's an idea about understanding your position right? In style. You even feel aligned with that, what that culture is, what that suit is, or you don't. So it's not the quality of fashion law, products, or those kinds of things. Rather, it's more about how you purpose the quality, how you purpose the talent, right? Yeah. There's a lot of great blues-based hard rock bands, but none of them purpose the talent like ACDC with the same chords. Just like my two guys in a suit. Mm -hmm. Two, two blues-based rock bands. The blues-based rock band has to come from Australia <laughs> and play three chords like no one's ever played three chords, right? They right. repositioned what rock and roll music, they repositioned rock and roll. And Malcolm Young had the best right hand in rock and roll. <laughs> exactly. Exactly right. His and, rhythm was unbelievable. unbelievable. And so it really comes down to this palpable thing called nuance, right? That's why I wanted to talk about the front of the beat for you, the back of the beat. It's about nuance to find that position. And so if you think about you know, this idea of what makes something masterfully different. Like when you talked about the law firm, one of the longest continually running law firms and this idea of style and feel, but it's that purpose and the knowledge that creates wisdom behind that purpose. Like you said, we didn't have a mentor. And every time you say that, I keep thinking to myself, oh my God, we don't have positional wisdom. We didn't have the wisdom. That's right. That's correct. Yeah, that's it. So my question for you is, if we distill down any profession, music, law, and we think about it as, and branding, what I'm in, the spirit of the product. Levi's has a spirit. A heavy-duty Ford truck has a spirit. The punk movement, when it first started, has a spirit. From your unique background, how do you create spirit, this positional spirit, with your own signature on it every day? in all that you do, whether it's a personal relationship or a professional one? There are two things. Do everything you can to make it right. It doesn't matter what the facts are. You get what you get. By the time we get a case, we get what we get, right? Right. But you got to do it right every time, good or bad. You do it right every time. You maintain you, your professionalism and you make the presentation on its merits, without an L-Y adjective. Because you lose credibility when you start adding adjectives. When you flower up what the truth is. Yeah, because right then you're is. covering up. Right. Just be honest. If right. it's bad, it's bad. Right. If it's good, you don't need an L-Y adjective. That's great. Although though the law is not what it used to be in terms of being black and white. Right. You can still use it to emphasize the good and the bad. Um, mm. and, and so that's what I try to do every day is try to just be straight. Mm. Be straight every day. Don't hide the ball. Don't be one of those people that says one thing and two weeks later does another. Right. If it turns out that somebody takes advantage of you, 
lesson learned. Guess what? You're not going to get anything from me again. Right, right, exactly. So as as long as I have that, it's uh, there. I can't remember what how the saying goes, but it's something like, "Don't be upset about the results you get for the work you didn't do." <laughs> right. Yeah. So as long as you're doing the work, that's great, and you stay on top of it, and you make the same presentation regardless to whom you're dealing with on the other side. Right. At the end of the day, it's all you got. Uh, and the other thing is to try, do your very best to treat the person you're talking to in that moment as the very most important, important person. person. You know, that's the lesson I started with Jake from the age of about three. And he is the kindest person I know. And I think it's because of that rule. So this is amazing that you say that. Professor Blackwell was on the podcast and he wrote that book. This is a perfect finish to this podcast. And he sat down with Steven Tyler and he co-wrote that book with a, another woman. I don't remember the author's, the other author's name. And he told the story that you just told. What you just said about Jake is what he said about Steven Tyler. He said that he goes and meets Steven Tyler and Steven has just become teen idol of the week. And this is back then. <laughs> and Blackwell says to Tyler in a hotel room, hey, and you can listen to it on the podcast. I'm paraphrasing. Hey, at your age, what are you doing being, you know, Mr. Teen? Steven looks at his wrist and on a wrist is a diamond bracelet that says, spelled out in diamonds, passion. And Blackwell later turned to his wife and she said, what'd you think of Steven? She said, between that bracelet and him acting like you and I were the only people in the room, the most impressive individual I've ever met. Because he's just in the here and now. Yep. Right? And that leads back to this idea about passion, about remaining visceral and creating, having that energy about you at all times. All right. Out of all the toll songs, I have a few ending questions for you. What did you want as a songwriter, the audience to feel from your expression? I wanted, to, wanted them to connect with us on a simple level, just in that regardless of what we believe, spiritually, emotionally, we're all in the same battle, right? And we don't have a whole lot of time. You know, I, I lost mom when she was only 53. We're all really important to each other. And getting those moments of them understanding what you and I were feeling. I mean, that kind of made it all worthwhile. Yeah. The, think about the, the craving you would have. When you woke up on the, knowing when we were on the road, when you woke up and you know, you got, the, you got a new group, <laughs> you got a new group of people to connect with, right? No, it was a big deal. It was. It was a big high. It was a big high. who were you going to meet afterwards? Yeah. yeah. And you know, because as you, of that. You, that's, that's beautiful. You remember the one time we played to the janitor and had no idea it was the janitor? Yes. So I'm going to tell that story. Port you Huron. <laughs> Of course, Mr. Detail knows the city. So here's the truth. We are playing in a beautiful mosque, I believe. Am I correct? No, there were I, shiny mosques out yeah. the back of the truck I saw on the way there. Yeah. Okay. I think it was a, it was, it had temple in the name, but I okay. think it was Masonic temple. Okay, okay. Where they played, you know, they had music and it was also for community. Religious, religious purpose. Yeah. Anyway, this place probably sat, I don't know. 700 people, maybe yeah. five to 700. We get there, we play, and I, uh, we're playing and playing. And there's, there seriously, I think there are 12 people there. And we're disciplined, as we've said. So we play the same to 12 people as 1,200 people, as 12,000 people, as one person. Yeah, it goes back to that. You're the most important person you're, you're the most in my important. life. That's right. Right now. That's right. The Jake and Steven Tyler motto. So, 
we, I would collect the band by make them turn around the drum set. We, we ripped it off of the Clash, and we would collect the band for the final couple songs to really, you know, move things forward. So I collect the band. And I look back, and there's only one person. There was only twelve in this giant room, but now there's only one. <laughs> so I say to Rick and the boys, "It doesn't matter. There's one." And we play so hard, sweat, blood, a <laughs> lot of blood. Poor bastards. And <laughs> I run up to the mic. I headbutt the mic. And we're done. Show's over. Guy's still sitting back there, loyal as hell. Show's over. And I said, see, cuz. I turned to Rick. I said, see, cuz. We did it. The guy gets up from his seat. He's walking up to us. I said, he probably wants to get a photo or talk to us. Comes up to the front of the stage. He says, you cats done? I said, yeah. He goes, good, because i got to clean up this joint. And lock up. <laughs> Get the hell out. <laughs> we got to break this down. You're 10 minutes over. If I can tell you. we That's opened, humbling. It's humbling. <laughs> we opened for Eddie Money at the Jackson County Fair. We're going to Jonathan Toledo. At the time it was on MTV. You're getting ready to be on MTV. The people had applauded beforehand. But this time, they're really applauding. They're chanting the chorus. Let me sing it for you. 19th Sunday, this is the rose, let it go. That's how it goes, right? Little chant. They're chanting, cheering. It's growing. The momentum is growing. I turn to Cuz. I say, look at this. There's a lot of people. They're getting into this. Applauding. Then we get done. I get ready to turn around to hit my guitar on the crash cymbal. Everyone was applauding because Eddie Money had come out on stage and was trying to help us. And he put his hands yeah. up saying, applaud for my opening act. They're not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, God bless Eddie Money. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you a million for being on the uh, show, getting the brand back together. Um, we only got through half of our topics. And next time we plan to tell more stories in a comedic behavior... But just like with a live gig, the same with a podcast. We let it flow whichever way it wants to flow. Anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks again for your insights today. And I'm very glad we had this conversation.